Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show with Tony D'Urso. Tony will have a conversation today with one of the world's great influencers as they showcase the newest, hottest, and best trends from all walks of life. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome and thanks for dropping by to have a listen. With so many requests to get on my show, I started including short interviews on significant topics to help bring about important messages to your attention, as you probably know. And they're almost like a public service announcement or a special highlight of a new book or a service. And most of all, this is all geared to today's entrepreneur and business person. It's geared to you. And I call these short interviews an insider's brief. Usually they're about 10 to 15 minutes long. All right. With that said, here are four key insider's briefs covering a range of topics such as getting your products and services well-known in the world today, including the modern dynamics of SEO and the nuances of the no-click world, and about the art of negotiating and generating more profitable agreements. For me, deals ended with a no. Our guest says that's where it all starts and about bringing a genuine and lasting change to facilitate recovery and development, especially when it comes to cognitive defects. We're going to discuss some life-changing results without medications, and about being a much better entrepreneur and business person. In fact, we're going to help you become better, faster, smarter in the era of total disruption. And as a kind of bonus, I'm going to talk about dominating social media. This is something we all need to grow our business. And if you do it right, you can skyrocket ahead. I have several hundred thousand followers, and I'm going to share with you some of what I've learned. Stay tuned for that at the very end. How's that for a range of special topics for us? And while we're at it, this is all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. We want to help you get very successful at growing your business to a high sustainable level and we're going to help turn you into an elite entrepreneur. All right, let's get the intro music going, and let's start with number one. Number one. And here's an insider's brief about getting your products and services well-known out there in the world today. Yeah, we're going to talk about marketing and social media, but a little bit different. And what we're going to talk about, knowing this well and using it wisely, it can make or break your business. Yeah, and that analytics, excuse me, and data analytics is the backbone of that. With us is Billy Mansman. He's the Director of Performance Analytics at BCM, and he's going to tell us about the modern dynamics of SEO and the nuances of the no-click world. Hi, Billy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me on today. Billy, I love talking about marketing, SEO, social media. It's it's what has brought every business their customers. It's what brings us to the shirts and the clothes and the computer and the TV and the shoes that we wear. Everything is connected. I don't think anything would happen if, if you didn't know about a product. How would you ever get it? And what has piqued my interest in all of this is zero-click search. And so let's just kind of start with that question. What is zero-click search? Perhaps you can define it and tell us, why is it a challenge to businesses today? Yeah, so when we talk about marketing and digital marketing especially, right, um, Google is probably the first thing that a lot of people think of. 
Um, and so within the Google stack, you know, within search engines, you have paid search advertising and SEO. So there's organic links on the page. And so what a zero click search is, is actually a search where someone doesn't click. So it's exactly what it sounds like, right? Um, and so the reason why it's important, and I think as my role in analytics, is that historically, when we look at digital marketing, everything is judged on this click, right? It's someone searching for your brand or searching for a term related to your brand, and they click on something, whether it's one of your organic listings or a paid ad. And the success of your marketing campaign is judged by what happens on that click and after that click. Um, but there are a lot of searches now where people are searching on Google and they don't click anything. Um, so an example of this might be like, let's say you're searching for a phone number for something and you search something, something phone number, and then Google pops up with that phone number. You didn't need to click to the, to the website to get there, to get that phone number, but you found what you were looking for, right? And that's a really simple example. But if you're, if you're someone who frequently Googles things, you find that a lot of the time Google will give you that little snippet that gives you the answer pulling from a page somewhere else. And so when that search happens, your brand doesn't get a click to the website, but your the information that you put out there on your landing pages in your ads influence the information that someone learned. And so this presents a really interesting challenge for marketing analytics because we've always judged on the click but now there's a lot of these searches where no one is clicking and you have to actually think of it a little bit differently. If you were there, if your brand was showing and if Google was pulling that information from your website, was it valuable for you to be there? Based solely on clicks, the answer would be no. Um, but what we're, we're trying to determine for our businesses is, is there value in simply being present on the search engine results page that's not being quantified by clicks? And so that is... Um, really interesting to us. And I think it's sort of something that can allow you to stand out if you figure out what is the best way to attribute the value of being there. You know, you're absolutely right. When I search, I love the fact that the two or three sentences has exactly what I'm looking for. And I don't have to go anywhere or any or go any further. Yeah. And and, and you're right. I, I don't notice the website or the URL Usually they're really long and I'm just looking for the answer, you know, what's the weather today or what color do people like the most? I, I don't need to go to somebody's website, but it's, but it brings in that you could be high in the standings, but yet people aren't necessarily going to find out more about your products and services or the data that you provide. And so now uh, while I'm thinking with that, and I totally agree that that's happening, and I th I think more and more of people are doing that, we now have introduced into this AI, and perhaps you can better explain it, but as I'm thinking with it, people are using AI to do the search and give them the data. That doesn't give them a click either. Perhaps I'm making a, making an error there, so let me just ask it straight up. How does AI affect all this, and and is that good or bad? Yeah, so AI is actually making this issue really more and more prevalent, right? And there's actually two impacts that AI is having here. Number one, to your point, a lot of the times now as something like ChatGPT becomes more relevant, um, when you're looking for information, some people just go to ChatGPT and go, hey, ChatGPT, what is the answer to this or what am I looking for, right? Those people never end up on Google or Microsoft at all, right? So they're never searching on the search engine. 
Um, but what ChatGPT is doing is it's pulling from your content, right? And so SEO is all about content. And so that information that you put out there, right? So if you go to ChatGPT and ask for a brand recommendation, they're pulling from what's out there on the internet, right? And so your content needs to still be out there, but you're never going to see the click that might have come from that search. And so that's one thing that's really important. But I think in particular, what's really developing, and I think is sort of the more um, apocalyptic events, so to speak, for um, paid search advertising and SEO is this search generative AI experience that Google is sort of beta testing and sort of rolling out, where when you search, what's going to happen is that there's going to be this, here is what AI says the answer is that pops up before you click on anything. And so um, a lot of industry estimates expect that the amount of traffic that you're going to get on your organic listings is going to drastically go down once this fully rolls out. And so what that means is that for something like SEO, the efforts are going to become immediately less effective. Um, if your traffic suddenly declines from SEO by 50%, this could be really concerning to the long-term future of that type of um, activation, right? And so I think as we look at that, that that makes understanding the value of that search where someone doesn't click really important. Um, but again, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep investing in your SEO or your paid ads because that's sort of the sourced information that the AI response is doing. So if you ask AI, what are the best brands for me to do? For example, say you're looking for batteries and you're like, what is the best battery for this purpose? You still want your content out there so that when the, when the AI is sort of scraping the Google to figure out what is the best battery, they might find your brand. Let's say it was like Energizer, for example. And so that, that sort of conversation around will SEO be less valuable when the clicks drop drastically is really important. And I'm a sort of analytics person, so I'm usually not in the world of binary yes or no's. Um, odds are it might hurt the value, right? But my question is how much, right? Quantifying that impact. And that's really where the role of analytics becomes more important as the SG experience fully rolls out. Billy, so much money is spent on SEO and it's such an important thing. People are always thinking SEO, SEO. It's taken it's taken a time of uh, the culture to get into businesses. And now it's so strong, even if, and I say even if SEO is less valuable, it still becomes more important to businesses. So I'm really interested in how the future plays out on that. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's still good to put out your data. I mean, you're, you're not going to stop. You've got products and services. So it's a matter of how to put it out, but you still have to put out your, hey, we're, we provide these types of batteries for these purposes. You still have to put that out, but you're not able to, let's use the word quantify the, the, the zero click searches because some AI is scraping the web. So how can businesses move past this and say, hey, it, this is valuable because of this data or these analytics? Yeah, so there's a couple of things here is strategy-wise, um, there are certain strategies that you can employ to sort of how to succeed in a generative AI world. That's that's less of my focus. I'm not the SEO lead at BCM, but you know we have a really great SEO team that's sort of working on what is the best SEO strategy to succeed in that world. Um, but on the quant quantifying analytics side, I think the important piece is we need to reorient our thinking to be less about the clicks when we talk about SEO and paid search, right? 
it's not all about the click. There's value in just serving an ad impression. And what I'm, what we're doing is trying to, for each of our brands, quantify what is the impact of that on the total business results of our clients, right? And so what is the value of serving impressions being visible on the search engine results page on the growth in the business over time? Um, so that for me involves a lot of data modeling, right? Looking at our impressions over time versus the growth of the business and sort of coming up with, for example, if you're a business that operates on revenue, what is the revenue value of an impression? Is it one cent? Is it half a cent? Is it two cents? Right? Whatever it is, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're serving thousands of hundreds of thousands of millions of impressions, that can add up to a lot if you, if you can sort of quantify that impact. Um, a lot of, a lot of brands use things like media mix models. And so what that is, is basically you put in a bunch of information from your different media channels and then model those that relationship on the overall revenue. And um, a lot of those simply use spend or clicks as the sort of input for something like search. Um, but it may be that we want to consider using something like impressions because if the clicks for search are going down over time, we might see that impressions may be the better thing to model. And so it's really all about, from my perspective, how can we find the value of an impression or the value of a view or the value of something else that isn't clicks? Great points and so much more we could discuss about this. For more information, please go to bbclarkmyler.com. I'll spell that B-E-E-B-Y-C-L-A-R-K-M-E-Y-L-E-R.com. The URL will be in the description below as well. And Billy, thank you so much for going over this and explaining it. And you've opened me up to a very interesting world. I've definitely got to find out more about this myself. Thanks for coming on the show and talking to us today. Thanks so much, Tony. Number two. And here's an insider's brief about the art of negotiation and generating more profitable agreements. Now, it's a given that we probably would all be wealthy and debt-free if we had good deals and agreements from our businesses from the very start. For me, I know I'd be a bazillionaire if I had every deal that I ever started. And while I've done a lot of sales, for me, deals usually end with a no. Our guest today says that's where it all starts. We speak with Todd Camp. He's a master negotiator whose company has coached over a hundred thousand people, including the FBI department and Silicon Valley executives. Hi, Todd. How are you today? All right, Tony. Thanks for having me. How are you? It's great. I'm looking forward to learning a lot and I can go so many different ways. So maybe start here. We have challenges today. And you mentioned this off here just before we started. There's some big challenges that face us today in negotiations. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So First little context, um, we are a negotiation coaching firm. You know, there's an element of training in what we do, but we prefer to assist our clients from the trenches working on their real deals. So we kind of see um, very clearly what tactics and what um, gamesmanship is going on on the other side of the table. So the reason I bring that up is because it's important. Um, a lot of executives, business leaders today, I believe there's you know three main challenges they're really up against. 
First is they have a flawed mindset as to what negotiation is. You know, most people, um, the majority of the people, quite frankly, on the earth believe compromise is required in negotiation. And, you know, a lot of people see us as being a little bit counterintuitive uh, because we don't believe it's required. Keyword being required doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And, you know, I won't sit here and say our, our clients never compromise. But what we see is a lot of people uh, prepare with it. They go to it too quickly. Um, and so they, they have a misconception of, of what it really, you know, what, what it really is. So um, when we see, you know, or hear the word no, from a coaching perspective, we believe that's the best answer you can get because it keeps the status quo. You know exactly where you stand. And if you know where you stand, you can then plan and prepare the next agenda with the right folks. So, you know, um, the word no to us is one decision at one point in time. Uh, a lot of people get fear, stress, anxiety from hearing that no or saying that no in some instances. Uh, but the more comfortable you become with it and understand you have the right to veto, we call it, you have the right to, to say no. As you get comfortable with that, um, we see, you know, people make a lot of progress and, and get things done. They didn't know were attainable. Okay. I'm thinking with that. And it's very interesting. Yes. If you get a flat out no, then at least you, you know, you've gone somewhere and you've got something to handle. From my experience in sales, no is the person doesn't call you back, doesn't email you back. You don't hear anything. It just kind of just dies. And then you go, okay, well, that's a no. And I'm, I'm speaking like from way back then over a long period of time. So I think, you know, not to be silly, but getting just a no, I think is great uh, because at least you know where you've gone, right? But there's more to it. There's more to it. And I'm not quite sure where exactly to go from. So maybe you can help me. Like, where do you go with this? Like, you're at this point, you either feel the no or you know that there's, it's not going to go that way. And it becomes very tough. So how how do we how do we get past that? Well, a lot of a lot of this is what type of sales are you in? What type of uh, negotiation are you in? Are you is it a long term business relationship you're negotiating? Is it a one time um, you know interaction where you you won't be seeing the person anymore? Usually, if you build the right agendas very early on, um, and and you uh, give a person the right to push back or disagree or uh, say no or decline what you're proposing. Uh, usually we don't see it end there. We actually see our clients uh, able to re-engage and find out, you know, where did we lose you? Um, where did things go south? Um, you know, what, what, what are you saying? We're not saying, you know, how did we, uh, how did we fail this process? But um Early on agendas are really critically, you know, important to people. Um, if you let someone know uh, ahead of time that you're not going to, for example, you let someone know ahead of time, you're not going to be providing the proposal and the details of your pricing and exactly how you would deliver your product until you have an opportunity to meet with all the, the stakeholders in the decision-making process. So we let people know that very early and often um, in hopes that they will eventually facilitate an introduction or get us in front of the folks that are going to be counting on, you know, whatever it is you're negotiating for. 
So there's certain agendas that we push really hard on setting very early on to where um, hearing the word no and saying the word no really isn't that uh, um, concerning just because of the type of relationship we've built, you know, shooting each other straight. So much of this world believes negotiation is just tricks or tactics, excuse me. And um, because of that, fear, anxiety, stress, people kind of equate that with, with the word. Um, but the more you, um, get comfortable with it, the more you ask for it, the more you let the other party know, you know, not only do you have the right to push back when I disagree, or if there's something I'm seeing, I can't get on board with, if it's okay, I'll bring that to your attention. You know, how acceptable is that? Kind of the way I see things is as long as the person, as long as the prospect is speaking with you. It, it seems it, re, it goes to reason that you've got something that w- is of interest to some degree because they're still there speaking with you. Now, I presume the ideal setting is you're sitting there in the office with, with the prospect. I mean, that's beautiful. Not Sales are not necessarily done that way anymore. There's sales that are more difficult, and it could be, it could be the topic as well. Are there any topics? And I'm not trying to be silly, but, you know, we understand the buying a car type of a sales approach and and where that can go negotiation but you're there you you're there be looking on the lot because you want a car so they they the the dealership almost has that cap- captive prospect because you're really looking for something and they probably have a little more bandwidth to go but today we do a lot of our shopping more and more on the internet and that makes it kind of tough um how do you got any any ways to deal with that because it's just like you click something if you don't get the response you want you're 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 on somebody else's website you know i mean you'll switch over most of our coaching and the clients that we support it's not uh very transactional types of negotiations it's usually up against a um larger company that appears to have all the resources in the world and therefore we see it as they have power and leverage over us but there's a reason why we're at the table. There's a reason why they want to negotiate with us. So those types of deals where you're actually building a relationship where once you sign the agreement, you're actually going to have to deliver on it and you're going to have to work with those teams for a long period of time. So those are really the types of negotiations uh, that we, that we support Um, the transactional ones. We do have some tools to use um, behaviors, what to say, how to say it. Uh, But the, the majority of our focus is, you know, you have an executive team. Um, they're trying to mergers and acquisitions. They're trying to sell their company to a larger entity uh, because they see an opportunity where if they acquire your technology, it's going to allow them to leapfrog um, some of their competitors and gain market share very quickly. Or they look at you and they say, You know, if we don't buy this company, there might be a few others we could look at. But the reality is where they are in the market, we would have to spend millions and and probably multiple years to catch up to what this company has already built. So therefore, you know, they approach our clients about potential acquisition and, you know, different stakeholders get involved. So a lot of negotiations with uh, corporate development, um, you know, C-suite folks. Um, there's a lot of different players. Sometimes investment bankers are on the other side. Uh, when you manage all of those negotiations, what we find is, which is interesting to us, 
um, is that the most difficult negotiation is always the internal one. Specifically in acquisition negotiations, coming to agreement with your your coworkers, your co-founders, your board, your investors on what it is you want is, is very difficult. And to us as coaches, it's very important knowing what you want. Um, so a lot of what we do is help our clients negotiate um, the most difficult negotiation, which is the internal one to get that alignment. Because once everybody's aligned, it becomes much easier to go ask for uh, exactly what it'll take to get it done. But until then, it's difficult, you know, which gets into another topic of what, um, who has the advantage, you know, the person that goes first or the person who reacts to whatever the offer is. So a lot of times, you know, people prefer to let the other party go first. And, you know, we support that. We support that and have ways of, of thinking about that, how to react to it. Uh, but we actually don't have a problem if you go first, if you have three things. One is, you know exactly what you want, which a lot of times is very difficult. Two is you've confirmed what your purpose is, meaning uh, you've confirmed exactly what it is they want you to provide them and how they want you and your team to deliver on that. If you have that, uh, that's another key ingredient. Third is you're dealing with the authority. So if you know what you want, you know they see very clearly what the opportunity looks like and how you're going to deliver on it, and you're dealing with the authority, we're perfectly fine if you want to go first. I like that. But where we're we're a little different is we're going to look for no at least three times before we would um, recommend you consider making a concession or um, thinking about it differently. It's quite something. And there's so much more on this. It's, it's, we could do a series on this for more information, please go to campnegotiations.com. That's the word camp C A M P and the word negotiations.com. Todd, thanks so much for coming hopping on the show and talking to us about this. It's a huge topic. I think we've wet some interest here and, uh, I hope uh, more people find out about it and learn how to negotiate better. Well, thank you for having me, Tony. The reality is we could talk about it for two days. <laughs> There's so much here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Tony. Number three. And here's an insider's brief about bringing about a genuine and lasting change to facilitate recovery and development, especially when it comes to cognitive defects. In fact, we're going to discuss some life-changing results without medications. We speak with Dr. David Witkowski. He's the director of Cognition Ignition, who's been having rave results helping people with all sorts of, what do you say, phenomenon or issues? Cognitive, cognitive issues. Cognitive issues such as sleep, depression, memory, brain fog even helps with low self-esteem. Right. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Tony. It's my honor. My pleasure. This is a very important topic. Uh, we all want to learn more about this. So let's start here. Perhaps we could start with the core philosophy that's behind your approach to helping children and adults who have various cognitive challenges. My pleasure. Um, the... The, the main uh, concept of the work that I do is uh, working on the source of the symptoms, not the symptoms themselves. 
the belief system of the cognitive world for many years and all over the world has been that the human brain is fixed and non, not changeable. If somebody is born a low-functioning individual, they're, they're stuck with it. If a brain injury occurs, they're stuck with it. And so the main the system that we live under, the psychological system, is always dealt with the symptoms rather than the cause. So the main issue that I have taken up is to work on the source of the symptoms, which in turn heals and takes care of the brain. Uh, and then the brain doesn't have any symptoms to show. It's very interesting. And uh, while we get our wits around this, I know that there are plenty of misconceptions and myths about the brain. And so I'm really curious, what are they and what are some of the, are the ones that prevent people from healthy recoveries or taking care of things? And basically, how do we address these? Many people that have uh, cognitive issues, uh, be, be it from learning issues up to pre-dementia, uh, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, these issues, again, need to be addressed in, at the source of the problem, not at the symptom level. And when the brain is treated properly, when the brain understands the language that is, a, that is given to it and the, uh, a language that addresses the, the brain, it reacts like the cell phone when it gets updates or the computer. And all the corrections is done by the brain, not by outside sources, not medications, not talk, the brain itself. Okay. Do you have any kind of education to help people as, and the families with who have children's parents, siblings that really need this help? Um, you know, I've been working very hard for the last 23 years doing this work, trying to educate people uh, that there is relief. There is a solution to the, to the issues that the cognitive deficits uh, uh, can address. And unfortunately, many parents get the advice of, of uh, the specialists who have uh, notions from the past, if you will. Um, they believe that the brain is not changeable. They believe that uh, sometimes I, I hear from my uh, brain-injured uh, injured, uh, patients that the neurologist told them that after a year and a half, uh, nothing can be changed with the brain any longer. Uh, I think it's a very good story. Uh, with, with them, with the neurologists and psych psychiatrists and psychologists, they, their belief system is that it's not changeable from the moment that you approach them. So I don't understand about the year and a half. So there are misconceptions that people get from the system because the system is, again, driven by symptoms, solutions, rather than brain solution. You know, as you say this, David, it makes me think of something I heard. It's a little bit of a tangent. It's not exactly this topic, but I've heard it since I was a child. Everybody knew growing up that intelligence could not be changed. Intelligence could not be changed. Intelligence could not be changed. I know I said that three times, but yet you learn something. You learn how to count one, two, three. You just became smarter. You learn how to do your multiplication tables. You just became smarter, yet we're always, we're told, 
people can't get smarter, but yet you have to go to school. So we run into these strong, prevailing uh, thought processes in, in society, which if you if you don't examine them, it, it defeats the whole purpose of the whole thing right right at the beginning. And yet, I don't even know where they came from, but they're baloney. Uh, they are definitely false, Tony. You are, you are so correct in your, in your thinking and what you just said. It's the things we've been taught. It's the things we, we've learned from being, getting involved with the system, seeking cognitive help, uh, seeing a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a neurologist. Again, the biggest misconception, even to them as being professional, the biggest misconception is that the brain is not changeable. Well, you cannot bring on intelligence, or you cannot uh, have somebody function properly. And it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, I say it from 23 years of experience, not from textbooks, not from stories. It's wrong because I have changed the lives of everyone that has come to me uh, that was given all kinds of different stories and diagnostics and, and false uh, notions and ideas and in reality, the brain is very, very changeable, modifiable. And you have a lot of experience with that, David. You have some great successes. Could you, could you share some stories with us? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have worked uh, for the last 23 years with um, multiple varieties of, of uh, cognitive deficits. I must tell you, Tony, that I've learned more from my patients than than I did uh, uh, previously knowing about the psychological field. Um, I, through my work, I realized how much of those deficits my work can help and change. Um, uh, it's mainly because uh, I don't come from the world of psychology. Uh, I come, I, I, I was introduced to, to this world of psychology uh, uh, approximately 25 years ago. And I, I led to believe, which I believe now, that the brain is changeable, modifiable. It first started with Professor Vygotsky, a Russian psychologist, who claimed that the brain is changeable, and everybody said that he's nuts and crazy. And then uh, P Professor Ray, a Swiss psychologist, also claimed the same thing. And the third one to follow was Professor Reuven Feuerstein in Jerusalem, in Israel, who developed the program that I do, to be done in a classroom application. Last 23 years, since Professor uh, Feuerstein did not want to collaborate with me, I developed a, a uh, system to be used in a clinical application of his work. And it's turned out to be very successful and very effective. That's great. Tell us, tell us some stories of perhaps where you've, you've made some great progress. Oh, yes. Uh, I can tell you about, uh, I'll, I'll start with ages. Uh, Sophia came to me at the age of eight. Uh, her mother is a teacher. She noticed right away that she's having a hard time con conceptualizing, understanding the, the material. Uh, she was difficulty writing, math, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Sophia worked with me for approximately uh, a year and a half. And she went from not figuring it out, to honor roll in three years. It took me two years to do the work with her, and then it took a year for her to, to acclimate and to project it into life. That's one thing that's important, is once the work is done, it needs to be projected into life, because that's what it's all about. 
I can I can talk about uh, my 40 year old uh, gentleman Jesse. He came to me and he had depression, anger issues, alcoholism, drug usage, fighting. Uh, I worked with him for approximately a year, again a year or year and a half. He is free of everything that he had, completely free. He has a job. He's happily married, and the rest is history. I can then talk about. A, a lady by the name of Dale, uh, she came to me at the age of 65. Now, if you listen to the system, they say at 65, you couldn't change anything. Well, I worked with Dale for about two and a half years. She had learning issues. She wore the dance cap in school, which you know what that stands for. She had trauma. She had, uh, learn, uh, uh, she had uh, brain injuries, approximately six or seven, some her fault and some intentional, and some were not intentional. And she completely changed. Even her pre-dementia stopped after two and a half years of work. And mind you, 65 years old, not a year and a half after her injuries, but uh, let's say 60 years later, still changeable. Until the day we pass away, uh, the brain is modifiable. It's changeable if you have the right language to address it and make it make all the necessary changes to change itself. Absolutely astounding. So how does someone, does someone have to be there personally and physically with you? Or can someone do this online? How does your, how does your program work? Um, since the, the COVID uh, from uh, 2019, uh, the last four years, I have gone uh, uh, virtually, I have uh, changed my program so I can uh, do the virtual work. Uh, I work all over the world now uh, uh, via Zoom. And how it works is I have uh, uh, paper and pencil brain exercises, which are the ones that that excites the brain into multifunctioning and then bring on changes. And so what I do is I send the pages to my patients. They print them. They use a laptop in back of the pages, and after we schmooze, after we get to know each other, they tip the camera down, and once I see the page upside down, it's just like being in my office for 20 years doing the work, but I am virtually somewhere else in the world. I have patients now in, in Guam. I have a couple in Europe. I have one in, one in Israel, which we know, unfortunately, what's going on. I have one in the Bahamas, and so... Uh, because of uh, uh, referrals, uh, I work all over the world on Zoom, including domestically, I must mention. That's impressive that you can do this type of work on Zoom. And it's, and again, there's no medication, there's no equipment. This is just a, a different level of training, whatever the word is for it. But that's what amazes me so much is, is in the past, you had to physically see a doctor. You had to physically be there for therapy. You had to physically be there to get supplements or herbs or whatever. But here, this is just a whole different way of operating, of, mm -hmm. of practicality, mm -hmm. and yet it works. It's highly effective. I'm absolutely blown away by it. Well, this is why I was trying to uh, impress upon you that uh, uh, once the, the brain is given a language that it understands, uh, it will fire up and do its own corrections its own fixing. It, it sounds like magic. And in a way it is. It's, it's as mysterious as the way the brain works. It's as mysterious as the chemistry in our body. 
how it works. It's the, the brain really reacts to the work that I do because it, it, the, the work is projected to it. It excites the brain. And, and eventually I see huge, huge changes in the people that work with me. And people come and people go with me. They don't stay with me 30 years like they do with some of the traditional therapies. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a revolving door, which only says to me how powerful and effective the work that I do. David, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. It's very impressive. And for more information, go to cognitionignition.com. Cognitionignition.com. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Tony. I so appreciate you. Thank you. Number four. And here's an insider's brief about being a much better entrepreneur and business person. In fact, we're going to help you be better, faster, and smarter in the era of total disruption. We speak with Christian Boo Bukosis, a former fighter pilot and CEO of Afterburner. Hi, Boo, and welcome to the show. Hey, Tony. Thanks very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to get to spend this time with you. It's great to see you again, and I appreciate you jumping on the show. Boo, let's take it from the top, and I'm just going to just jump right in. Can you tell us about the evolution of thinking? I love it. Simple question uh, to a complex problem, but hopefully the solution made simple. Uh, the evolution of thinking is really uh, a new way in which we as humans can embrace a world that's high-speed, hyper-digitalized, and really the word that most people use is disruption and change. But acknowledging that disruption and change is just the world, and that is just the default. And if we evolve the way we think, we become far more comfortable uh, in that environment. The, the model, the mental model, the cognitive model, is a, a way of thinking that fighter pilots have been trained to do for decades. The evolution of that model is its application in day-to-day -day life because whilst there's certainly a lot that you learn flying around at 2,000 kilometres per hour, some of it doesn't necessarily translate across seamlessly, particularly the rah-rah stuff about being a fighter pilot. But the way in which we approach a problem, the, the way in which we have to succeed and, and we successfully deliver on our objectives 98% of the time. So if you took away an aeroplane and you put in a business and you had the fighter pilot running it, that's your business achieving what it sets out to achieve 98% of the time. Now, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, being a fighter pilot, you're in control, you're in an amazing aircraft, it's an environment that you're uh, very comfortable in. And, but that's not true. You're never comfortable in the environment. It is so dynamic and so fast and moves in three dimensions that when we look at how you have to think in those environments and apply it to a world that's much you know, slower, a little more calmer, what you find is you start to get ahead of your business, ahead of the problems, and what you start to see is disruption presents itself as opportunity. That's the evolution of thinking. It's a way of connecting how we feel to the way we think and the actions we do each and every day, but connecting it purposefully through the incorporation of what I call uh, thought loops. 
It's very interesting. And one of the things that I think about in going over this topic is kind of similar to like the jet fighter pilot. But in that you go very, let's just be very, very simple here. You go very fast, very fast, but for short, sustained periods of time. You don't, you're not going Mach 1 or Mach 2 nonstop forever. In our business world, however, it's different. We have to keep going fast no matter what. And uh, there's no such thing as what's that phrase, uh, burnout or whatever. When we we have to perform, we have to keep going. And I believe some of what you've uh, uh, tapped into is the secrets of sustained high performance. Yeah, that's the difference between fighter pilot culture and high performance culture. Uh, as a fighter pilot, we have to perform all the time. Yeah, yeah, sure. We we have a window of of execution, which is the mission. When we hop into the airplane, do what we need to do and put the airplane back on the ground. But that's no different to business either. Like most of the time in business is preparation, communicating, sharing knowledge, building systems and processes. It's no different. When, when you're, let's look at sales and marketing, for example. Uh, if you're in sales, you're not on the phone for eight hours making sales calls. If you're prospecting, sure, but that's not real. You're that's a different goal. That's just a, a, a quantitative goal, not a qualitative goal. If you are uh, if you own a cafe, then it's busy in the morning and there'll be a time period where you have to be on. But the lessons of being a fighter pilot, being prepared before you execute, reflecting on what happens each and every day, and that's, that the power of the evolution of thinking is actually the thought loops. It's our ability to reflect and ask, what happened today? relative to what I was expecting and why is there a gap between what I was expecting and what happened and I have to be really analytical here and find just one reason and when I figure out what that reason is I have to do something about it and when I mean do something something has to something has to move something has to click there has to be an action not not an idea or another problem where we kick the can down the road but just one small action. So, so the thought loops and the genesis of this is what we is what fighter pilots call the debrief or debrief culture. The genesis of this was the requirement for fighter pilots to learn very quickly and become effective very quickly because we only get a few hours in the jet. The rest of the time is is on the ground, uh, and that time is actually getting smaller and smaller. So, so what we learned was the fastest way to learn is to have a culture which is very open and honest called nameless and rankless. And within that culture to share the small reasons, the, the minor details as to why we didn't optimize our performance today. And in that environment, there's no right or wrong. In that environment, there's no repercussions to anyone's career, even if you break the rules, as long as you're able to diagnose and, and learn the skill of, of self-reflection and self-critiquing. That's the ultimate goal. And I've observed this. You know, I've, I've started and grown four companies to multi-million dollar enterprises. And if you think about it, the, the, the likelihood of a, of a business succeeding that never existed before is only about 10%, right? So if you look at, at doing that four times and four successes, that's, you start to see it's nothing to do with me. It's the mindset that I was equipped with where success is absolutely imperative to your survival. Speaking of that mindset, you call it the GID. Can you tell us about the GID mindset? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there that talk about getting things done, getting stuff done, or you know, derivative of the S word. Uh, for me, 
it's getting it done, just one thing at a time, but lots of single things. Uh, and the ability to, you know, we people talk about, I don't know how to prioritize. I don't know which one thing I need to do. Well, the reality is when you start to incorporate thought loops and you start to debrief, the prioritization looks after itself. And if you're actually getting it done every day and, and you have 10 things and you get 10 done, you don't need to prioritize anymore because it's done. We prioritize things that aren't done yet. And that's the problem. And because we can't prioritize, they, ne- they never get done and therefore we don't know what to prioritize. But if your in-tray is empty, if, if your project is over, there is nothing to prioritize anymore. It's finished. I like that. That's very, very simple and directed to the point. I like that. I have one more question for you. From chaos to clarity? That is, that's what mindset's all about because chaos is the default function. And I'm not sure if there's any astrophysicists or budding astrophysicists, but the, the one thing I remember from school and I didn't do very well at school was, you know, the, the universe tends toward entropy. That, that the default is to tend towards chaos. So to get from that state into, into clarity is purposeful. And, and the, we have to have a very clear understanding of where we're going. So chaos is not science. It's, it's kind of uh, like a fluffy cloud, what I call it, it's the kind of art of life, the art of execution, where we just have to have a general idea and where we're headed, but it needs to be obvious. So climbing a mountain is an obvious one. There's the mountain. I can see it. I'm going to get to the top. There's no ambiguity there. And then from there, the science of day-to-day execution, which is getting it done. Uh, and if you bring those two worlds together, you can control what you do. You can't control where you're going. But through the, through the act of doing the right things each and every day, we navigate this course, this winding road that ultimately gets us to that destination. So from chaos to clarity requires purpose, a very clear articulated idea of where you're going. And that's an idea. It's a story. It's gravity. It pulls you along. And then the discipline to run through these do loops every day, these thought loops to course correct as the world changes around us. Very simple. I love it. Makes great sense. Boo, where can our listeners go to find out more about this, find out more about you and what you do? Uh, to find out more about me, it's very, very simple. Callmevu.com uh, is my website. And if you really want to do a deep dive into fighter pilot mindset or programs to help equip yourself and your team to really embrace it and, and hear the story, afterburner.com uh, is, uh, is a wonderful place where you'll learn an inordinate amount about how to fighter pilots think and do. Sounds great. I'll put those on the show notes here on uh, this episode. Boo, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it. Punchy to the point, but I love it. That's how we work these days. Thank you so much. Keep it simple. Thanks, Tony. Real pleasure. And now let's have a chat about dominating social media. You know, most of the world is involved in this in some fashion or other, even if it's only to see the latest news or follow some trends. Us entrepreneurs and business people We use it to let people know about our products and services. So, how can we get the attention of more people? How can we get followers and how can we engage with them? This topic is huge, understandably so. And I just started a sort of masterclass on this at patreon.com slash Tony, D-U-R-S-O. In fact, it's free to join to get some basic info from me. I also have a PDF on how to crack the code 
of social media. You can find that on my Patreon as well. So let's start with this for you. One of the biggest mistakes you don't want to make. You know, when I got into podcasting, I once had a guest who had four different URLs that he wanted listeners to click on. I was a little blindsided on it, and I went along even though I felt it was kind of odd. Later, the guest was unhappy that he didn't get any clicks or leads from the interview. Around the same time, I had a guest who shared only one URL. That guest raved and raved on social media about the clicks and the phone calls that he got from our interview. It was the most he ever got from any podcast by far. That taught me right there and brought it home what it really means to keep things simple, to be simple. You've heard it said that the audience has a limited attention span, haven't you? Well, I don't know that I really believe that as there are people of all walks of life in the audience, but I can tell you from experience the pure ease and simplicity when I ask for only one item from anyone in social media or even in an email. Once I ask for multiple items, even if I number them or put them in bullet points, I find it rare if anyone ever does all the steps. And while I still make this mistake today, I really try hard to just keep it simple and just ask for one thing. For example, if I ask you as a listener of my show to share the episode, give it a like on social media, comment on the new episode, give a nice review, dot, dot, dot. Wait, wait, wait. That's just much too much to ask you. Do you get the point? The best thing to do is to ask the person to just share the episode. Just just ask people to do one thing. Keep it simple and ask for only one item at a time. And you may be delighted to find out that more people will do it because it's just one thing. And I'm going to give you one other point to make sure you don't do. And you're going to get a lot more if you go over to patreon.com slash T-O-N-Y-D-U-R-S-O. And you'll find that link in the description here somewhere as well. So what is this mistake? Well, let's, let's try this. We all want to be the social media lion of our day, right? We want to be the kingpin. We want, you know, we want everyone to love us, don't we? At least most of us do. So what do we do? Well, we join all the key social media platforms that are out there. In fact, when a new promising platform comes out, we join that too. Next thing you know, you have to check into dozens and dozens of social media platforms a few times a week. I regularly get emails about the hottest, the latest, the coolest social media platform and to join now for free. Now, how cool is that? There's thousands of these platforms out there, it seems. So let me ask you, how much time do you really want to spend on them? All right, well, let's try this. Let's say you're on a dozen platforms. Then what? Do you really want to grow all these at the same time? Snapchat, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, personal Facebook business, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, Instagram, and others? Believe me, I've tried them all and many, many, many more. Some really, really good ones too. But it just eats up time. One day I spent some three hours just answering messages on Facebook, and I then sat back and asked myself, did anyone listen to my show? No. Did anyone give me a review? No. Did anyone join me on another social media platform as a result? No. Did anyone buy my book? No. Did anyone buy my services? No. You get the point. I cut back on every platform. Today I'm on less than a handful with just about 
two as my main go-tos that I check every day and that I'm active on. The result? I've got several hundred thousand followers on social media. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway here is don't try to be a king on every social media platform. Push and pitch your tent in one place and grow that. And then head on over to patreon.com slash Tony D-U-R-S-O. Join for free. There's some other tiers too. And I will teach you a lot about social media, growing your podcast, and so many other things. I'll see you there. All right, there we go. And thanks for hanging out with me while I featured four key insiders briefs to help you in your business and in your life. Now, each one has something important that can impact you, your business, and your life. And we really hope that you've enjoyed these and that you learned some gems. And please share this with a few friends too, all right? It's friends helping friends, which is so vital to help get things back on track today. All right, let's use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks and remember, just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds, do good deeds, and join me on the next episode of the Tony D'Urso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of the Tony D'Urso Show with Tony D'Urso. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, go enjoy the weekend.